You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. Five through, actually three full chapters, chapters 25, 26, and 27. And... If you've ever seen any of the most popular movies about the book of Exodus, whether that be the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or any of the others that are out there, they typically culminate and climax and end with the giving of the Ten Commandments. But I want to suggest this morning that that isn't the climax of the book of Exodus. In fact, when a film ends there, I would argue that the story misses the most important part of the book of Exodus. Beginning at chapter 25 and going all the way through chapter 40, almost the the entire remainder of the rest of the book has to do with the giving of the plans for and the building of the tabernacle. In fact, right smack in the middle, you find chapters 32, 33, and 34, which deal with the incident of the golden calf, but the remainder of the rest of the book deals with the tabernacle. In fact, uh, a full fourth of the entire book is blueprints and building. So what we're about to get into is essentially I would argue the most important part of the book of Exodus. And I hope you see why by the time we're finished this morning. Now we're going to be doing something of a survey of these three chapters. And I want to encourage you to go back um, and read them in more detail and a a bit more slowly in your own time. But I want to give you the big picture. And I want to show you what I think God is saying to us through these three chapters this morning. So we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Father, I do pray this morning that you just bless the simple reading and hearing of your word. But as we move into these three chapters and seek to unpack them a little bit, in our time together today, I pray that you would ignite awe and wonder in the hearts of your people 
at what you have given us in your word, but more importantly, what you have given us in Christ Jesus. Everything that's in these three chapters points implicitly to him. And I pray that he would be the center of our conversation, the center of our worship, and the center of our response today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Moses, at the end of chapter 24, has gone up on the mountain, and the text tells us that he was there 40 days and 40 nights. We know that during that time he received the 10 words written by the very finger of God on stone tablets. We're also told here that during that 40-day time period, while Moses was on the mountain, he received from Yahweh the blueprints for this holy dwelling place. We're told in chapter 25, verse 8, that Moses is to go forth among the people and, in a sense, as a free will offering, gather supplies from them for the building of this dwelling and for the making of the priestly garments for those who serve Yahweh in this dwelling. Now, I want you to see something really important this morning. This is a stunning development in the book of Exodus. In light of everything that we've heard in chapters 19 to 24, it should shock us to hear Yahweh say that he's going to come down off the mountain and dwell among his people. Everything in chapters 19 through 24 should lead us to conclude that that will ultimately be a dangerous thing for the people of God. After all, multiple times beginning in chapter 19 and ending in chapter 24, God has told Moses what? Warn the people not to come past this line lest they die. So to hear God say, Moses, I'm going to come down off of the mountain and I'm going to inhabit a tent in their midst. A, a literally a mobile palace. This is going to be a wandering band headed home to the promised land and I'm going to travel with them. Now, in verse 8... God says two different things. He says, let them make me a sanctuary. It's the idea of a holy place. A place set apart for God to dwell, that I might dwell in their midst. It's just a house, a dwelling place, a tent. So let these people make me a home that I might live among them. Now, what you need to know is... This is such a stunning development in the biblical story because of everything that's come before. In Genesis chapter 3, God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden, literally from his presence. And yet what has God done? God has come after his people. God has come down to them. In fact, this is the entire goal of redemptive history. If you read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, listen to what you find. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is something of a partial fulfillment of what's to come at the end of redemptive history. And notice, it happens outside the garden. It happens in such a way that it's not God coming back to his people, but what? I'm sorry, it's not people coming back to God, it's God coming for his people. Right? It's God coming for his people. God comes down the mountain, or he's planning to come down the mountain, to make a home among his people. And it, <clears throat> it really signals something of a return to Eden, to things as they were meant to be, humanity in the presence of God. This is what you and I were made for. This is life. To literally dwell in God's presence with him, feasting upon him. And finding our everything in him. Now the remainders of chapters 25 through 27 unpack the detailed plans that God gives to Moses for the building of this dwelling place. Now you should have a picture this morning of essentially what the tabernacle might have looked like based on the detailed plans that were given in these three chapters. And as we go along this morning, I want you to pay attention to that, to put yourself in the picture, because essentially when we come to the end of our journey, we're going to discover that that's exactly what the tabernacle is. It's a picture. It's a model. And the order in which the things are given, which I've laid out in your notes, is vitally important. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep you in a bit of suspense as we go through them, and then I want to come back around and show you what it all means and why we have the plans in the order that we do. So God gives Moses a set of plans for really a home fit for a king. A home fit for a king. God is going to come down off the mountain and he plans to live among his people. And curiously enough, where do these plans begin? Not with the dwelling place itself, but with the furniture inside. Okay? So the plans begin in chapter 25, verse 10, with something called the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told throughout these plans that this box of wood is essentially to be overlaid with pure gold. And it's to have a lid made for the top of it that's to be made itself out of pure gold. 
And we're told that in this box, in verse 16, Moses is to place the testimony that God will give him. What is this testimony? The testimony is the ten words. The words of the covenant that God has established with his people and his people have agreed to with God. We're also told very specifically that here at this lid, which has two cherubim facing one another on top of it, that this is the hot spot of God's presence on the earth. Look at verse 21. This lid is called a mercy seat. And you shall put this seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people. Right here, this is where God is going to meet with his people and give his instructions to his people. We're told in verses 17, 20, and 21 that this is the place where God's people will receive mercy, which implies that they're going to need mercy. Right? Like that this relationship between God and his people, it's not always going to go as planned. But we're also told in verse 22 that this is the place where God's people will receive instruction from their king. So right here, in the hot spot of God's presence, you have God presented as both Savior and Lord as merciful redeemer and ruling king. Now, you can probably already see where this is going, right? Good. The Ark of the Covenant. Interestingly enough, it has the dimensions or proportions of the footstool of an ancient king. According to one commentator, when a king sat in judgment, he sat on his throne and put his feet on a footstool. Now, there are at least three scriptures where we're told that God rules from heaven and the earth, specifically the Ark of the Covenant, is his footstool. Listen, listen to what David says in 1 Chronicles 28, 2. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for the building. Listen to Psalm 99.5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Let us go, Psalm 132.7, let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Look, part of the point is that a dwelling place made by human hands cannot hold the eternal creator of the universe. This hot spot of God's presence 
is God's footstool upon the earth, the place where his rule among his people is made manifest. Next, you have a table. In chapter 25, beginning in verse 23, we read, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Now, we're also told about this piece of furniture multiple times. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And that's important. Hold on to that. All right? The fact that gold is used for the ark and gold is used for the table. Now, we're also told what this table is going to be used for in verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now, does, does, does God have to eat? What's the purpose of the bread? We're not told here. In fact, we're not told until the book of Leviticus what the purpose of the bread is. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 to 9. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord, and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's offerings of perpetual due. So the bread that was to be placed on the table was to be baked and placed in two rows of six, twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes who were making this food offering to the Lord. It's essentially, ultimately, the Lord setting the table for his people and inviting them to come and fellowship with him. That's why it's called a fellowship offering. The table represents God's promise to provide for and to nourish his people, as well as his invitation to join him at the table of fellowship. Now, the third piece of essential furniture that we're told about in chapter, chapter 25 is the golden lampstand. Verse 31 says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. It shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes and flowers shall be of one piece with it. Again, the use of pure gold is emphasized throughout the making of what is essentially a tree, a seven-branched tree that is ultimately to have olive oil put in it and is to be lit by the priests from evening until morning every single day. Now, we'll learn about that later, but it's reminiscent of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Remember what I said in the beginning, that God's goal ultimately is to dwell with his people, to take things back to the way that they were in the beginning. And so the tabernacle is essentially a portable, visual, 
tangible picture of Eden. And the tree, in some ways, represents the tree of life. Now, it also is meant to remind God's people that Yahweh promises to be the light of his people in a dark world. Being always present with them, he will lead them and he will guide them. How will he do this? Through his word what he told them. It's what he told Moses about meeting with them at the Ark of the Covenant. He would guide his people through his word. Now, that rounds out the essential three pieces of furniture that God's going to have in his home. The Ark of the Covenant, the table of the bread of presence, and then the golden lampstand. Verse chapter 26 is all about the actual tent itself. Now, why, is the, why would you furnish a house before you build it? Interesting. I'm not going to tell you yet. <laughs> now, chapter 26 is a lengthy chapter all about the actual blueprints for the tent itself. It begins with the curtains and then moves to the posts and then to the bases for the posts and all of those kinds of things. But I want you to, I want you to notice something about the tent in particular. You've got, the, you've got the sketch and then on the back of it are some measurements. The tent itself was designed to be 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. The text tells us that the tent is to be divided into two rooms. All right? Now, if you look specifically at chapter 26, beginning in verse 31, this is what you find. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Now that is important. What did God place at the gate of the Garden of Eden barring any entry? Specifically what? A cherubim. Okay? And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood with gold. There's gold again with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate, now that's important, the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, Set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. So this tent, this dwelling place that God was going to inhabit, he tells Moses that it's to be divided into two rooms, one larger room and one smaller room. Outside in the larger room would be the golden lampstand and the table overlaid with gold, There would be a curtain here, and behind the curtain would be the Ark of the Covenant, the hot spot of God's 
presence. Interestingly, the most holy place is a perfect cube. And cherubim are embroidered into the curtain, separating the large room from the smaller room. By the way, when the holy city is described in the book of Revelation, what shape is it? It is a cube. Interesting. Here's the picture. The Ark of the Covenant represents the promise of mercy. The table represents the promise of nourishment and fellowship. The lampstand represents the promise of light. But they're all enclosed in a tent that only certain people can enter. And once certain people enter that tent, there's a curtain separating the lampstand and the table from the most holy place, and only one person can go in there. And you're not going to find that out in these plans. You find that out later, but only one person will be able to go in there one time a year. So here's what you find. You, you, you enter the tabernacle and you see the promise of nourishment and you see the promise of life and you have the promise of God's presence, but there is a curtain separating you from God's presence. The curtain separates God's people from his presence in order to protect them. Because sinful people cannot survive an encounter with a holy God. You're going to find out that just as Mount Sinai was divided into three zones, the tabernacle is also divided into three zones. The most holy place, the holy place, and the courtyard. Next, once the plans for the house are in place, then you have the bronze altar in chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. Now, what is the bronze altar to be made of? Very good. Yeah, you caught that. Several times throughout those verses, we're told that both the altar and all of the utensils used in it are to be made of bronze. Now, again, we're not told exactly what it's to be used for, but we are given clues. Verse 3 says, you shall make pots for it to receive its, what? Ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. So something's going to be burned on this. Now we're not told until later again exactly what these things mean. But there are going to be things burned here. And like everything else in this portable palace, it's meant to be packed up and moved and used over and over and over again. Now the question again is, why does this come here in the blueprints? Furniture, tent, bronze altar. Still not going to tell you. Look, when you pull in scriptures later, particularly in the book of Leviticus, 
you find that this altar represents a reminder that the shedding of blood is the only thing that cleanses from sin. That something or someone must die if God's people are to, are to have access into God's presence. In fact, in the instructions regarding the garments and the duties of the priests, which we'll look at next week, you'll see that they're supposed to sacrifice an animal in the morning and an animal in the evening every single day. It's important. You move from the bronze altar to the courtyard of the temple. Again, representing the three zones of Mount Sinai. Now, if you look at the courtyard, you'll see something, you'll see two things that are important details that I want to point out. In the plans that God gives, he tells Moses about the south side, about the north side, about the west side, and about the east side. When the tabernacle is set up, it is supposed to face which direction every time? East. It's supposed to face east every single time. If you look at the other details about what these, uh, about what the court of the tabernacle is to be made of, no gold is used here. Only bronze and silver are to be used in the courtyard of the temple. Now, one of the things that I meditated on this past week was how often the psalmists wrote about desiring to be here. Over and over again, they expressed their joy and delight at being near God in the courtyard of his house. Listen to Psalm 65 for blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Psalm 84, 2. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Psalm 84, 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 100 verse 4. Enter his courts, his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The psalmists, they couldn't enter the tabernacle so they knew and desired the next best thing. Let me, let me be in the courtyard outside. Why? Because their great desire was to be near God. Do you and I long to draw near to God as they did? Finally, in chapter 27, verses 20 and 21, you have the instructions for making the oil for the golden lampstand. Verses 20 and 21 say, You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. 
In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from morning, from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Now, if you were just reading these, not looking for any any specific order, you, you would expect these verses to come where? After the description of the lampstand in chapter 25, why do they come here? Well, they serve as a transition point between the tabernacle plans and the plans for the garments that the priests will wear and the activities that they will do in their service to the temple. More than that, uh, this is one of the things that, um, that just blew me away this past week. The fact that from evening until morning... The light is always on. It's intended to tell the people that God is what? Always home. It's intended to tell the people that God is home and that God is welcoming his people to come and be with him. So now the question is, after we've done what is a very, very quick survey of the tabernacle plans. What is the meaning of all of this? I want you to see this morning that the tabernacle is like a map. If God's goal for humanity is that humanity would dwell in God's presence and God would dwell with his people forever. The tabernacle is essentially a map showing us the way home. Now look at the plans that I've laid out for you in your notes. Look at the order of them. The furniture, the tent, the bronze altar, the courtyard, and the oil. Why furnish a home before you build it? Because the furniture represents God's goal. The furniture represents the fact that this is what God wants with human beings. God wants to be Savior. God desires to be our King. God desires to be the one who nourishes us. God desires to be the one who gives light to his people in a dark world. That's the goal. Those are mentioned first because those are the things that God wants to be and to have with his people. Now the tent is mentioned next of all Because if the furniture represents the promise of life and fellowship with God, the tent represents the problem of human sin. The tent represents the problem of human sin. 
The fact that a home is built around these things and only certain people can go in at certain times of the year to do certain things tells God's people, this is what God wants for you, but God's holy presence is dangerous to you because of your sin. Which is exactly why the bronze altar is mentioned directly after the tent. What's the solution to the problem of human sin? What's the solution to the fact that we don't have access into the presence of God? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. So imagine, imagine walking in through the gate of the, the tabernacle into the courtyard, bringing your animals for sacrifice. What is right in front of you between you and that tent every time you walk in? The altar of sacrifice. So that you and I will never, ever, ever forget that something must pay the price in order for people to enter the presence of God. Well, then you have the courtyard, and then you have the tabernacle, which always faces where? East. Where did Adam and Eve go after they were exiled from the garden? Where did Cain go after he killed his brother? Further east. What does east represent in the biblical story? Humanity's movement where? Away from God. Humanity's movement away from God. So what, y'all, this, this is amazing. The fact that the tabernacle faces east, what is God saying? Come home, people! Come home. And I think most beautiful of all, the oil for the golden lampstand is mentioned last. Because what is God saying? To a lost and wayward humanity. The light's always on. Y'all, that is beautiful to me. The light's always on. Now, <clears throat> how do we get home? How do we get home? There's only one name given among men by which we must be saved. His name is Jesus. Everything in the tabernacle, everything that I've just outlined for you is a picture of Jesus. In fact, the tabernacle is one of the main themes in the Gospel of John. Beginning in John 1.14, 
What does John say? But the word became flesh and what? Dwelt. You could as easily say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John's cluing us in, in verse 14 of chapter 1, to one of the major, what's going to become one of the major themes in the gospel of John. Jesus is the way home. Doesn't that make much more sense of what he told his disciples? I am the way. Doesn't understanding the tabernacle make much more sense of this statement too? John 10, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's the gate. By the way, there was only one way in and out of the tabernacle. Only one. Jesus is also the sacrifice who pays the price for sin and who cleanses God's people. John 1.29, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you'll notice I'm walking you back into the tabernacle. Jesus is, as we walk back into the tabernacle, you see the golden lampstand and you hear Jesus say in John 8.12, I am am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then you and I turn, and we look at the table with 12 loaves of bread on it, and we hear John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, going from there into the very presence of God, this may be one that you've never picked up on. After Jesus has been raised from the dead, listen to what John writes in John chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, and think about the only thing in the presence of God in the most holy place. But Mary stood outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, and one at the feet. That's not hard to discern if you know what John's doing. Jesus is what? He is the mercy seat. He is the place where the people of God find forgiveness and where the people of God find our king and our instruction, our rabbi. What's interesting is Mary... Mary is the first person who represents the fact 
that all of God's people now have access into God's presence. It's a remarkable thing that there in the tomb, Mary essentially enters what is the most holy place. And then, when you go to the book of Hebrews, having read and understood these things, it makes Stuff come alive in a whole new way. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now stop right there. That was impossible for anyone but the high priest. And that only once a year. But the writer of Hebrews says, we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain. That is his own flesh. And we'll talk about the priesthood next week, but Jesus is not only the sacrifice, he's not only the tabernacle, he's the great high priest over the house of God. What are the implications then? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, do you recognize, do I recognize what is available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you and I recognize that the access that the Old Testament people of God longed for, the access that they knew they did not have and were reminded of it year after year after year, that is yours. And that is mine. That is ours. We come into the presence of our Father through Jesus, our King. There's a reason the veil was torn when Jesus died. Because it is now through his flesh that we are granted access into God's presence. And we're told to come boldly. And we're told to draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith. What does that mean? If you you and I belong to Jesus, then we belong there. We belong there. And the door is always open. No matter where we are. I do encourage you this week to go home and to ask the Lord to reveal more of these things to you as you read about the tabernacle. There are so many more details that we just didn't have time to get into. Like the fact that um, gold is used, the closer to God's presence that you get, 
The further away from God's presence you are, it becomes gold, silver, then bronze. Yeah. All kinds of things in here that I hope have sparked your interest and hope lead you uh, to worship the Lord Jesus more. Well, let me pray for us this morning. And our worship team will come and uh, lead us in a song of response. Father, thank you. God, we're so glad this morning to have the opportunity to gather here and to hear from you. Father, a lot of times we approach passages of Scripture like this, and we think it's tedious to work through them because we have all of these details about pieces of furniture and curtains and posts and gates and altars, and Lord, we try to make sense of them. But Lord, everything you've written is meant for our good. Even the very order in which you've written things is intended to communicate wonderful truth to us. And I do pray that your people this morning, though we have just scratched the surface, would have a hunger and a genuine desire to go back and to read asking your Holy Spirit to teach them that we might further connect the dots between this picture and model that you've given us and this map that you've given us home into your presence. God, I pray as we respond in song now, if there's one person here who's far away from you, that they would hear the invitation to come home in the tabernacle plans that you've given us. Lord, we love you. We just ask your blessing upon our time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.